This program is a paid commercial announcement from Jacob Media Partners and does not reflect the views of WPHT or its management. Your radio doctor does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, physicians, products, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned on your radio doctor. Always consult your own physician. Today's program has been pre-recorded. Overcoming great challenges like COVID-19 requires great cooperation. This is Dan Hilferty, CEO of Independence Blue Cross. Most of us never imagined we'd be facing an outbreak of this magnitude. But in the face of this challenge, hospitals, public officials, and business leaders have come together. Through effective cooperation, these leaders are taking steps to keep us safe. Slowing the rate of infection from the virus will help hospitals care for those who need attention most. Remember, stay home, leave only for essential needs. Stay informed from sources like the CDC or Department of Health. Take a break from watching the news. Stay well, exercise, and practice self-care to make sure you're physically and mentally fit. In our great region, we have a tradition of caring for each other and cooperating to get things done. We'll do it again now. For more, visit ibx.com COVID-19. Together, we will beat COVID-19. Talk Radio 1210, WPHT, WPHT, HD, WOGL, HD3, Philadelphia. A radio.com station. From the Malamut and Associates Law Studios, it's time for the Delaware Valley's first radio doctor. On call every Sunday morning at 10. This is your radio doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie. Presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross. That is a very, very robust, vigorous, achu sneeze. That's what that is. And that's not what we're talking about. Your health determines your life, your longevity, and your happiness. Let your radio doctor lead the way with your medical education. Your radio doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie. Good morning and welcome to your radio doctor. I'm your host, Dr. Marianne Ritchie, and we thank our exclusive presenting partner, Independence Blue Cross. Summer's here, time for baseball. This year's a little different for all of us, especially a star player for the Baltimore Orioles. ESPN reports that on March 12th, Major League Baseball shut down due to coronavirus. On the same day, 28-year-old first baseman and outfielder Trey Mancini underwent surgery for colorectal cancer. Today, we have very special guests to talk about specific issues with colorectal cancer. First, Dr. Robin Mendelson from Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center will discuss colorectal cancer in young people. Then two researchers from Thomas Jefferson University in Philadelphia will report on the vaccine they have designed for colorectal cancer. So let's begin. Dr. Robin Mendelson is a gastroenterologist from Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York the oldest and largest private cancer center in the world. And their Center for Young Onset Colorectal Cancer is also the first of its kind in the world. Welcome, Robin. So good to have you with us today. Thank you so much for having me. You and I are members of an exclusive club. We both trained in GI at Memorial. I was the first woman to train there, and I'm extremely grateful to doctors Sid Winower, Bob Kurtz, Moshe Scheich, Charlie Lightdale, Stellar teachers, outstanding people. So, Robin, let's begin by clarifying the term colorectal cancer versus colon cancer. Absolutely. So, the proper term is really colorectal cancer, and the large intestine includes both the colon and the rectum, and the rectum is actually the last part of the colon. And it's important to know this because cancers in this area can behave differently and sometimes require different treatment. Mm-hmm. 
And unfortunately, we don't want to see colorectal cancer in anyone, but we're seeing this rise in young people. Maybe you could share a little background with our listeners. Sure. So um, since the 1990s, we've seen a nice decrease in the incidence and mortality from colorectal cancer. And the majority of this has really been attributed to screening, most notably colonoscopy, with the identification and removal of um, lesions called polyps, which are precancerous growths that over time can lead to cancer. And our current screening guidelines recommend that everyone uh, 50 and older should get colon and rectal cancer screening. Um, and because of this, we've seen this nice decrease. But in stark contrast, we've seen an increase in those under 50 who are not in our current guidelines for screening. We've seen an increase since the 1990s in colon and rectal cancer in this group, and it's actually increased about 1% to 2% per year. And the biggest increase has actually been in the youngest group, in the 20 to 29 group. So frightening. And when we think about risk in young people, do we attribute the risk factors that we see, the traditional risk factors that we see with older patients? Right. So that's a good question. So um, we do know that the incidence increases with age. Um, so obviously these are younger people, so that does not apply. We do know that this does run in families and there are known genetic um, syndromes that are associated with colorectal cancer. Mm-hmm. Um, but when we look at these young patients, the majority of them actually do not have a family history and only about 10 to 20 percent will have a genetic mutation. So the majority of these patients do not have any family history or a genetic mutation that would predispose them to colorectal cancer. Um, Other known risk factors uh, include smoking, obesity, alcohol, and there are some data that show that obesity may be associated, but this um, is an ongoing question. And when we looked at our patients at Memorial Sloan Kettering, we actually found that our patients were less likely to be overweight and obese. Um, and smoking and alcohol also have not um, been shown to be associated um, as an, in- it's still an increased risk for colorectal cancer, but it seems that these younger patients are more likely to not smoke and drink compared to their counterparts without cancer. Sure. And you were telling me the other day when we were talking that actually many and most of your patients are young and fit. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, a lot of these patients that we see, they're young, they're in their 20s, their 30s. Many of them are marathon runners. You know, I joke around that that's actually the reason I don't run marathons. <laughs> um, oh. And uh, because, um, you know, they're, they're, they're young, they're fit. Many of them adhere to healthy lifestyle and really don't fit the picture of our traditional risk factors. Yes. And, and when we talk as scientists about cancer and um, cell types, because there are different types of cancers in particular organs, um, with colon cancer, the biology of the tumors seems to be the same. They behave the same on a cellular level. And if we're not seeing a genetic link per se, then we concern ourselves with other things we might be able to control or environmental risks. Talk about that a little bit. Exactly. Yeah. So we um, looked at back at our patients and we compared the tumors of, of young onset to those 50 and over. And the, exactly as you say, the biology of the tumors look to be the same. Um, so we're, we're thinking that it has to be something in the diet. It has to be something in the, in the environment. Um, there seems to be that there was a key switch um, for people born in the 1960s. 
So we're trying to figure out what has changed. Um, so, of course, um, we've talked about the um, people becoming more obese, not moving as much, thinking about dietary changes. Um, we're drinking less milk. We're drinking more sugary beverages. Um, people are taking many more antibiotics. Um, there's been more C-sections. All of these things are, are questions that have been coming up that we're really trying to answer. But as of yet, we really don't know what the cause of this increase is. Yes. And I was reading an article myself recently, and they talked about sedentary lifestyle watching TV. And I thought, gee whiz, I don't think of young people watching TV as much as sitting in front of a, or as much or equally sitting in front of a computer for their schoolwork, for their um, work in real life. I, I would I was interested in that they pulled out TV viewing. I don't know if it really makes if we sit differently <laughs> in one position or the other. But um, I yeah, think, as you mentioned, oh, sorry. That, but, um, okay, when you mentioned C-sections, that that there's thinking that that could change uh, a newborn's uh, microbiome or the the bacteria in their system or in their GI tract. I didn't mean to cut you off there. Exactly. So um, when babies are born vaginally and they go through the canal, that does influence um, the baby's microbiome, um, which when you have a C-section, that, that doesn't um, come into play. So the question is, did that make a difference? Um, along those same lines, um, being breastfed versus formula fed, does that make a difference as well? And those are all questions that we're looking into. Um, and as far as the sedentary TV viewing, yeah, there was one study that showed that um, independent of obesity, it seems that being more sedentary might increase the risk of um, young onset colorectal cancer. Again, it was a small study, um, and we're not sure if that will hold true um, when we look at a larger group, but it's, again, something that we're looking into. Yeah. Um, and then we talked, too, about what is one of the bigger changes in lifestyle that has happened in the past 30 or 40 years? And with the um, birth would be a, a pun, I guess, with the invention of the birth control pill, um, mm -hmm. there was the sexual revolution and people are more sexually active. And we say, could it be HPV? Could it be H. pylori, which we know is a bacterium that appears in some people's stomachs and may increase the risk for stomach cancer. But that doesn't seem to pan out so far either, does it? No, so it does not look like it's associated with HPV and um, the type of cancers that we're seeing in the young onset is, is not typically associated with the HPV cancers. Um, H. pylori uh, we are, is something that we are asking about in all of our patients, um, but hasn't uh, really been shown to be associated with young onset colorectal cancer as of yet. Yes. Um, in our final couple of minutes in this first segment, Robin, we really want to hear about the Center for Young Onset of Colorectal Cancer at Memorial. I know you mentioned that you opened in March of 2018, and in these first two years, you've seen over 600 patients. That's incredible. Yeah. It's just wonderful you've helped so many people. It's upsetting that so many young people need that specific help. In about the final minute here, tell us why it's such a great comprehensive center. Yeah, absolutely. So we, we opened the center for with two main goals. Um, the first is, is really patient-oriented, to really give these patients coordinated clinical care. Um, you know, we, we are used to treating colon cancer, um, and we are able to give them the best medical care that we can. But younger patients have different needs, um, fertility needs, nutrition needs. These patients are young. They're in their 30s, their 20s. You know, many of them don't have wills or set up or have even 
you know, thought about this at all. And so uh, the main goal was to give these patients coordinated care. Of course, they still get the top-notch medical care, but then everyone is given a social work consult so that they can discuss with the social workers any needs that they may have. And they're also given um, referrals if they'd like to fertility to uh, nutrition, to integrative medicine, to psychology and psychiatry, so they can really get comprehensive care um, and that they know all of the resources out there. And then, of course, the second main goal is really the research part of things. And our first um, goal was to figure out why this is happening. So we're collecting information on all these patients. Every patient's filling out a questionnaire asking about the exact same risk factors that we just spoke about. So diet, um, uh, medication exposure, C-section, exercise, and of course, asking about past medical history and family history as well. And then we're also collecting stool on these patients to look for microbiome, as well as their tissue and blood, so that our goal is to really try to figure out if we can figure out what is really causing this increase. Yes. Uh, It's so impressive what you've been able to do in, in really a short time. Um, Robin, let's take a little break. We're going to change directions for a few minutes and hear about the colon cancer vaccine from Thomas Jefferson University. We'll be back in a moment. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie, exclusively presented by Independence Blue Cross. If you have a question for the medical mailbag, just send a note to doctor at yourradiodoctor.com. Welcome back. And now we'll be hearing from two leading researchers in the fields of a colon cancer vaccine and therapeutics. First, Dr. Scott Waldman, MD, PhD, is the Samuel M. V. Hamilton Professor of Medicine, a professor of biochemistry and molecular pharmacology, and the chair of the Department of Pharmacology and Experimental Therapeutics at Jefferson. And from his colleague, Dr. Adam Snook, PhD, assistant professor in the same Department of Pharmacology and Experimental Therapeutics. So let's start with our guest, Dr. Scott Waldman. I have to say, to get through medical school, you have to know how to memorize. To be a PhD, these are the people who create new knowledge, new information. These are the real geniuses in our society. So hats off to Dr. Scott Waldman and Dr. Adam Snook. Scott, welcome, and thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Marianne, for having us. Wonderful. Now, we know that colon cancer has a very high mortality rate, especially in the advanced stages, and there are very few effective therapies. Scott, how long have you worked toward this day, and how did the idea first come into your mind that you'd be able to create a vaccine for colon cancer? Well, in fact, we've been working on uh, colon cancer now since the early 90s, uh, trying to find better ways to uh, treat the disease as well as predict uh, how patients uh, are uh, going to fare uh, after their surgery and their therapy. We went to a conference uh, actually around 1993. We went to a conference in Europe where we learned about work going on using immunotherapy uh, to treat blood uh, cancers like leukemia. And as we listened to the presentations, we thought to ourselves, if this could happen Uh, If this could be developed for leukemia, why couldn't we also develop it for colorectal cancer? Mm -hmm. So uh, what we thought about was that these solid tumors like colorectal cancer, uh, the the challenge here is to be able to identify the cancer 
separately and distinctly from the other normal cells in the body in order to target therapies like immunotherapy. Mm -hmm. uh, and so um, what we thought about, uh, much along the lines of what was being done at that time for leukemias and lymphomas, we were thinking about uh, how we take the body's own uh, own uh, immune cells that fight off infections like viruses and bacteria, how we can take those cells and make them recognize the cancer cells uh, and, and discriminate those cells from the normal cells in the body. In other words, to be able to do that, uh, the cancer cells need to have a homing beacon or something like a laser pointer that highlights them distinctly from the rest of the normal cells to the immune cells in the body so that the immune cells can recognize them and kill them. So it's almost like putting a ribbon on your suitcase so that when it comes onto the uh, drop-off after the airplane, you can say, that black suitcase is mine because it has a blue ribbon on it. You're trying yeah. to distinguish your target, sure. And tell us, what did you do to find this tumor market that would direct the army of T cells to their target? Well... That's a good question. So we've been working with a molecule called UC2C uh, for many, many years. We started studying this molecule uh, in the early 80s, uh, looking at it for its biology. And what made us interested in uh, UC2C was that it was the, that it is actually the molecule that leads to traveler's diarrhea, and so. When you travel from the United States to Central America and you drink contaminated water uh, and you get traveler's diarrhea, it's almost always the case that the water was contaminated with bacteria that make a small toxin that, that recognizes GUSI2C. Uh, and that interaction between the toxin and GUSI2C stimulates water secretion into the intestine, uh, which, it, which is the reason you get diarrhea. So we were studying GUSI2C, and we learned a number of uh, features uh, about this molecule that made it interesting as a target in cancer. First, we, we discovered that it was only made in intestinal cells, and actually the way the intestinal cells make it, they actually shield the cells, uh, shield the GUSI2C from the rest of the body. So this molecule sort of hides in the intestine away from the immune system inside the body. The second thing that we discovered was that beyond the normal intestinal cells, GUSI2C is made by almost 100% of colorectal cancer cells. And, it may, and these cells make it when they reside in the intestine as well as when they metastasize outside of the intestine to distant sites like the lung or the liver. And then the third thing that we discovered was that we could, in fact, target GUSI2C which sits on the surface of these cancer cells, and we can target it separately and distinctly from normal cells, the surrounding normal cells, that don't make GUSI2C. So once we recognized that it was specifically made by metastatic colorectal cancer cells and that we could target it, it became apparent to us that we could also potentially target the immune system to recognize GUSI2C on cancer cells. It's like a flag that, that uh, beacons these uh, immune cells to come and kill the cancer cells, but not the, the normal surrounding tissue. 
Right. And how many steps and how many years and trial and error and zigs and zags did it take to get to that point? It's just incredible, really. So, Scott, would you say that there are three goals that you're hoping to achieve using immunotherapy? Yes. And so, actually, um, we have the lofty goal of ultimately preventing cancer. Uh, You could imagine immunizing people uh, who don't have cancer uh, so that they would recognize any cancer that develops uh, and prevent it from from growing. That's one goal. Uh, We're far away from that goal. Uh, more, More realistically at this point, Uh, we would like to be able to take patients who have had colorectal cancer and now and have had their definitive therapy, either surgery and or chemotherapy, and now those patients are at risk down the line for potentially developing recurrent disease. We would like to take those patients, immunize them uh, with the vaccine uh, to prevent the development of recurrent disease down the road. And then in the third uh, uh, Third utility of this approach is to be able to take patients who have uh, metastatic disease already existing uh, in their, for example, in their lungs or in their liver, uh, and we would like to be able to treat them with immune cells that uh, are targeted to GCC that could home in to the the metastases, kill the metastases, but leave the normal tissue intact like in the lungs or the liver or elsewhere. Real exactly. quickly, our next topic will be the unbelievable paper that you published with Dr. Adam Snook about the infusion into human patients. And we'll be back in just a moment to talk about that. Today's edition of Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie, presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross, can be enjoyed on Radio.com. Listen to the show at your convenience. Go to Radio.com and in the search bar type in Your Radio Doctor. It's health education on demand. With us now, we, we return to Dr. Scott Waldman and now are joined by Dr. Adam Snook, both professors from the Pharmacology and Experimental Therapeutics Department at Thomas Jefferson University. I started to talk to you, Scott, about uh, your ultimate study, and we want to bring Adam into the conversation too. Adam, you're an immunologist. Um, Scott is, uh, you're both PhDs, and you both have your strengths, and together you came up with these two puzzle pieces that meshed into a vaccine to prevent recurrent colon cancer and to treat metastatic or colon cancer that has spread. Tell us a little bit, if you would, Adam, about the paper that was published in 2013 in 10 patients. Um, So in that paper, um, that was really the the culmination of several years of work um, developing and iterating on different vaccines targeting the the molecule that we're interested in, GUSI-2C. And in that study, we uh, immunized 10 patients with uh, the vaccine that we had developed and looked for um, its ability to induce immune responses in those patients and to do it safely. So we we administered the vaccine, we collected blood samples, and, and measured immunity in those patients. And the way that happened was you took people who appeared to have completely 
um, been treated by surgery or maybe a polyp was removed, but they were in the category of stage one or stage two, so early colon cancer. And there are situations we would describe as no evidence, no evidence of disease, right? And of the 10 patients, they, were, they received the vaccine. They had no toxic side effects except maybe a little soreness where the injection occurred. And then you check their blood at 30, 90, and 180 days later. Yep. And the samples told you that the killer cells, those T cells that Scott and I were just talking about, did go and function in killing colon cells because you're able to measure an immune reaction, yes? Exactly. Um, yeah, those those T cells are the, the T cells that we're really interested in harnessing, and we're able to detect reactive T cells in, in several of the patients that had received the vaccine. So you studied them. The infusions uh, were given in about 2013, and you filed them for five years, and five out of 10 of the people had an immune response. Is there any theory as to why it would work in one patient and not another? Yeah, um, we've actually, we think we have it pretty well worked out. Uh, the vaccine that we use is composed of a virus that's used to deliver the gene that we're interested in targeting, the gusi 2 c protein that's found in the colorectal cancer cells. And the mm -hmm. virus that we use in this vaccine is composed of an adenovirus. This is actually an adenovirus that we're exposed to uh, all the time, and many people develop immunity against this virus. So we knew going in, actually, that uh, several of the patients would have very high immunity to the vaccine and would actually resist it um, when we gave them our GCC vaccine, our GUSI-2C vaccine. Mm -hmm. So that we, means if somebody has a, a history of pink eye or some of the common colds come from adenovirus, that maybe their um, cancer cells were like, ah, we're not impressed, we've seen this before, and they don't react the way the other five people who did react so we know that colorectal cancer is the number two cause of cancer death in the United States and worldwide, and surgery can cure the disease in many people, but for people who have recurrent disease, the outlook is grim. So if this vaccine is effective, it could train the patient's immune system to attack the colon cancer that had already spread microscopically when they had surgery. I mean, it's just incredible. So Adam, I'd love to hear before this study was done with human patients, you did work in mice um, that demonstrated that the vaccine could work. Tell us about that long timeline for you. That probably took years to even get the initial data. Yeah, it took us several years um, to know that, that this was going to work. Uh, it was brand new, the, the concept of targeting this molecule in immunotherapy. So we had to develop a number of different vaccines and actually leverage expertise at the institution that we work at. We have several investigators working on different vaccine platforms, and we took advantage of each of those uh, and tried them. And we actually um, initially put them all together to see if we could get sort of the most uh, bang for the buck and enter into a really, really strong immune response that we would be able to measure in terms of anti-tumor efficacy. So we did that. It took us several years to get to that point to generate all those vaccines and perform those studies. Um, but, but it demonstrated really well that it was working, and then we could start to tease apart which, which parts were really working well and, and kind of further develop those to, to ultimately create a vaccine that we could bring to patients. So I want to do this justice. There are really two versions of immunotherapy that 
are involved in your work. One is the vaccine. So if I have this right, um, you give a, uh, you're stimulating the person's existing immune system, their own T cells to prevent recurrent disease. But you use a different therapy called CAR T cells for people who have more extensive disease. Say we call them metastases or spread to other areas of the body. Is that correct? Yeah, the, those are the two approaches that we've been working on, and they're really um, used in different scenarios. So the vaccine is really not unlike a vaccine for infectious diseases. It's designed to uh, engage the immune system that's that's already present, activate those cells, and kind of educate them to be ready either when, in the case of infectious disease, when that pathogen would come along, or in the case uh, of us, when that cancer would try to come back those immune cells would already be educated and ready to fight it. That- Good. Um, and Scott, when you would uh, do the, the first patients, you would take their T cells and genetically engineer them and then make millions of them and reinfuse them back into the patient. Am I right about that? That's correct. They're like little smart bombs that are targeted and homing in on the metastatic cancer. Beautiful. And that's where your idea of using, and for our audience, Goosey Tusi refers to a very complicated protein, G-U-C-Y-2-C. And so it's like looking at a license plate with a, um, a funny uh, name. We just call it Goosey Tusi. It's easier than saying all the individual letters. Um, so what are the two ways, Adam, in which immunotherapy works? So this is kind of a, a generalization, but in in one case, we want to engage the immune system and turn it on to try to attack the cancer. And in other cases, the immune system is already trying to do that, but the cancer is pushing back. They might make molecules that turn off the cells, or they might uh, put up barriers to kind of resist the cells coming in. So the other approach is to remove some of those breaks, remove some of those barriers that allow the immune system to do what it's already trying to do. And there's actually been several cancer immunotherapies that have been approved over the last uh, five years or so uh, using that approach where they're trying to knock down some of the barriers that allow the immune system to do what it's already trying to do. So in one way, you want to teach the T cells to go out and kill cancer, but then over time, the cancer can build up its own immune system and push you away. So we only have a few minutes left. Adam, I wonder if you could tell us about, before you use the vaccine in humans, tell us quickly about the studies you did with mice who had colon cancer and then those who had uh, spread to their lungs, because that's fascinating. So in, um, in those studies, we had uh, used this CAR T cell approach where we're genetically modifying the T cells to uh, create T cells, uh, an enormous population of T cells that are all directed against the cancer. And in the animal studies, we had set up an experimental system where the mice had a lot of metastatic tumors in their lungs, trying to mimic sort of the worst case scenario for patients. And we delivered those CAR T cells and it was able to cure the mice of, of those cancers. So it eliminated all of those tumors and the mice went on to sort of live their version of a, of a long, happy life after that. So the mice who had colon cancer, um, half got the vaccine, lived 75 days. The ones who didn't only lived 30 days. And then in a second study, you saw mice that had colon cancer with spread to the lungs. 
And the vaccinated ones lived 100 days, and the mice who didn't get it lived 20 days with no side effects. So in other cancers, this therapy, there have been deaths from side effects. But the work of doctors Waldman and Snook have shown it to be effective and safe. It is just incredible. I can't, I want to be in the front row when you get your Nobel Prizes. Um, so, so far, the phase one trial is what you did report that you had uh, infused patients in 2013, the Journal of Immunotherapy of Cancer, April of 2019, your study. Tell us quickly what you're planning for this fall, phase two of your work. Uh, uh, Scott, if you could end with that. So actually, um, in the next uh, month or two, uh, as soon as we can uh, get clearance uh, from the institution, we will be initiating the phase 2A trial uh, of the, um, uh, the vaccine 2.0. We learned a lot from the phase 1 study uh, with 10 patients, and we learned enough to, that allowed us to go back and revise uh, the vaccine so that it will... Uh, produce a therapeutic effect in more patients, and we're going to initiate that trial and look for the safety uh, uh, and tolerability of the new vaccine, as well as the immunological efficacy at producing T-cells that, that recognize uh, GUSI-2C. Moreover, we're taking that vaccine now, and we're going to expand the patient population from just colorectal cancer patients to include also gastric cancer, pancreatic cancer, and esophageal cancer patients because many of those patients, their cancers make GUSI-2C as well, and so they will be eligible for, the, for uh, receiving this vaccine. This is really miraculous work. I can't thank you enough for joining us, especially since uh, this is a really difficult time for people and logistics. God bless you. Keep up the fantastic work. Your work could save 25% of cancer deaths. It's incredible. Dr. Scott Waldman and Dr. Adam Snook, both professors at Thomas Jefferson University. Personally, I'm proud to call you my colleagues. Thank you so much. Stay well. Thank you. Thank you. Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie is exclusively presented by Independence Blue Cross. Dr. Marianne will return, but first, a medical message from one of our partners. Welcome back. In these final minutes with Dr. Robin Mendelson from Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, we'll learn a little more about colorectal cancer in young patients and talk about whether we should change the screening guidelines. Absolutely. Um, so right now, the majority of our screening guidelines in the United States recommend that um, everybody should start screening at the age of 50. Um, in May of last year, the um, American Cancer Society came out with new guidelines recommending that we should possibly decrease the age to 45. And that created um, some confusion because it, it went against some of the other guidelines. Um, but what they did is they, they really took into account young-onset colorectal cancer. And since it's increasing, um, they did some modeling studies that showed that it, it would make sense to decrease the age to 45. That being said, they made it a qualified recommendation and still kept 50 as a strong recommendation. So not all insurances are going to cover starting at the age of 45. But what I think that it does is it really increases awareness 
of colorectal cancer screening and how important it is and how we've seen this nice decrease in incidence and mortality in those 50 and over. So we really encourage everybody in that screening group, age group, to talk to their primary care physician um, or their GYN or their gastroenterologist about undergoing screening for colorectal cancer. Now, should we decrease it even more because the, as I told you, you know, the, the largest increase has really been in, in the youngest group, the 20 to 29 group. And, and this is a debated topic. And, and, you know, I think that the answer is that as of now, we don't have enough data to really recommend doing universal screening in everybody. Um, but I think it's important for everybody to know both both patients and physicians that we have seen this increase in young onset colorectal cancer. And a lot of people think if you're young, you, you can't have colorectal cancer. So if you have the, the most common presenting symptom is rectal bleeding. And so many people think, oh, if you're young and you have rectal bleeding, it has to be hemorrhoids. And I think what this really brings up is awareness that it doesn't always have to be hemorrhoids. Now, most young people who have rectal bleeding will not have cancer, but I think it's important for patients to advocate for themselves and for physicians to be aware of this so that they can really promptly um, examine these patients and decide whether or not they should go on to more procedures such as colonoscopy. Yes, and I think you make a good point that if it persists, don't be shy or don't have, worry that somebody will accuse you of overreacting. It can happen. And in conjunction with what you said about uh, the American Cancer Society wanting to decrease to age 45, we know that African-Americans have a 20% higher risk of being diagnosed and a 40% higher risk of dying from colorectal cancer. And so it's important to say maybe the reverse. Let age 50 be the oldest you are before you get screened. That's another way to approach the uh, public awareness. Um, to reach you to make an appointment, Robin, um, we'd get, give out the number 800-525-2225 to see you at the Center for Young Onset of Colorectal Cancer or at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. And I will tell you, I had very much looked forward to the lecture honoring Dr. Sidney Winwer this year that was canceled with the pandemic. But I hope I can come and visit all my friends at Memorial next year. Absolutely. We'd love to see you and have you. Well, Robin, the, you work in a magical place, and they're very fortunate to have you. And thank you so much for joining me today. Great information. Stay well. And keep in touch. Thank you so much. You too. This week's segment, Jack Cloran, A Man with a Plan. June, always a fun time of year, school's out, lots of weddings and graduations. But for one family in particular, their son's high school graduation was better than winning an Olympic gold medal. Jack Cloran, a senior at the Haverford School. Good student, starting player on the football team, played basketball too. Of course, his parents are both athletes. His mom played high school basketball and dad played through college. In fact, for 15 years, his parents, Kath and Steve Cloran, have run a basketball camp for elementary school kids in Delaware County and across the main line. In the fall, Jack noticed occasional pain in his leg, but played through it. He celebrated his 18th birthday in October, and when the season ended, he mentioned the pain to his trainer and his parents. The orthopedic surgeon said the MRI showed a lump in his femur. This wide receiver entered the game head on. He checked into the hospital and waited for the biopsy, but the opposition had a different plan. On a short walk, his leg collapsed and broke. 
Now the first play would be sedation and full leg cast. The next game changer, the biopsy showed osteosarcoma, which is cancer. After eight weeks of chemo, the tumor didn't listen. When Jack heard the word amputation, he accepted the news and focused on a new mantra, life over limb. Love and support poured out from the family, friends, and the entire community. His church started a rosary every Tuesday night. Local high school students started a campaign for Jack and two other teens with cancer. Hundreds of houses in Havertown shining with green lights for hope. His aunt organized blood drives at local schools, not just for Jack, but as a way to channel her worry into positive action. As he grappled with the news, Jack told his mom that he'd enter the Paralympics. My chances are much greater there. You see, Jack and his family were no strangers to disability and finding the light. Jack's uncle Chris has cerebral palsy. Needing a wheelchair doesn't stop Chris from making every men's basketball game at St. Joe's Hawk Hill, where Jack's granddad, Don Julia, spent 35 years as one of the nation's foremost athletic directors. And Jack's aunt worked for a prosthesis company. Every summer, Kath and Steve Cloran would have patients with artificial limbs give inspirational talks to their basketball campers. And the company owner, a prosthetist, went to the doctor visits with Jack and his parents to learn about his prosthesis. My friends, this is not coincidence. This is the Lord's providence. They say God only gives you what you can handle. And when Kath explained that for so many years her family promoted disability awareness, I could see where Jack got his strength. Jack never asks, why me? He often says, it is what it is. Prayer and determination have helped him through chemo, the amputation, major chest surgery, COVID, and now more chemo. Recently, Jack was interviewed by the Philadelphia Inquirer. The writer asked, Jack, do you have any leg jokes? Jack said, not on me. And none of this stopped him from going to school before it closed and heading to the shore for senior week. He wants to be like every 18-year-old. And when he's stronger, he's ready to accept that invitation to Penn State. Like a seasoned athlete, Jack doesn't look back because it's game time. The clock is ticking. He says, next play. Recently, the Haverford School had a virtual graduation. In only two months, this six foot three inch warrior adapted to his new leg, just in time to glide across the stage with his diploma into his parents' proud embrace. I asked Kath what went through her mind. She said, the next time I celebrate a special walk like this, it will be his wedding day. And did I mention that Jack's father, Steve, is a teacher at the Haverford School? Pretty special four years for a father and son to share. So a very special happy Father's Day to Granddad Donda Julia, Dad Steve, and Son Jack, and the entire beautiful Claran family. Thanks for listening. Send us your stories of a real champion, pictures of the flag in front of your home, or questions that I can answer on the next show to info at yourradiodoctor.com. And remember, your health is your wealth. Thanks for listening to Your Radio Doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie, a Jacob Media production. If you're interested in learning more about the power of the radio hour, contact Joe Krause at 267-261-3428. This program is a paid commercial announcement and in no way represents the views of WPHT or its management. Today's program has been pre-recorded.